Mark Angela here, the president of CLGPS, and I want to bring your attention to our upcoming fall conference. This is the big deal. This is the big one. This is what we spend all year preparing to deliver to you so you get the best training, both experientially and didactically, in group psychotherapy. This year's conference is going to be at Cedar in Aurora, and the topic is desire, exploring wishes, fears, and impulses in group psychotherapy. We're happy to announce that our keynote will be none other than Dr. Lucy Holmes, she talks about the intersection between feminism and modern psychoanalysis. So for more information, to buy your tickets, right now they're on early bird, so they're cheaper. They're going to be going up September 1st. We're looking that this will definitely sell out, so getting your tickets early is important if you really want to have a spot. You can find information on our website at www.cogps.org or on our Facebook page. We're also looking for people to present proposals. So if you're inspired by this podcast or by what we've been putting out as an organization, please submit a proposal on our website. We're looking for people to run institutes and do both 90-minute and 180-minute workshops. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for feature guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. We are incredibly honored today to have joining us Dr. Lucy Holmes. Dr. Lucy Holmes is a licensed psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She is a member of the faculties of the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, the New York Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, the Boston School of Psychoanalysis, and the Center for Group Studies. A former president of the Society for Modern Psychoanalysis, she lectures widely on female development and the technique of modern group analysis. She is the author of numerous journal articles on women and groups and a winner of the 2002 National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis Gradiva Award. She is the author of two books on psychoanalysis, The Internal Triangle, New Theories of Female Development, and Wrestling with Destiny, The Promise of Psychoanalysis and she is currently working on a novel. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Holmes. Thank you so much, it's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we are so honored to have you and we are thrilled to have you be joining us in a couple of months as our keynote speaker. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we are looking forward to having you. 
So the first question that I like to ask our guests is to tell us a little bit about their story. How, um, I know in your case, you came from Texas and moved to New York and would love to hear how you found your way to New York and into the world of modern analysis and group process work in particular. Yes, you're right. I am from Texas. Uh, I was born in Houston uh, into a a family that where I was loved and wanted. In many ways, I was lucky. Uh, my father was in the oil business, so we had plenty of money. But uh, it was a difficult childhood. Um, my parents really had no uh, no idea about emotional intelligence. Uh, there was a lot of um, repression, lying about petty things. Uh, I had a very distracted and unhappy mother. Um, and it was a society that was extremely racist and sexist. Um, the racism was, even as a child, it, it horrified me. And um, on a social conscious level, I, I thought this is not the way the world should work. But the sexism was very personally uh, restrictive to me. Um, I can remember my, my father, when I told him I wanted to go to medical school, he asked me, why? You're pretty. So at, from a very early age, I felt I really wanted to get out of there. But I did not have a clue about how to do it. Because uh, in that culture, um, women were expected to marry and have children. It was acceptable to be a nurse or a secretary, or a teacher. But those were pretty much the choices for women. Um, I knew that I was very talented. I was a very talented singer, and I was a very talented actress. So I ran away from home. And I came to New York uh, to be a famous actress. That was, at the time, uh, I was quite young, and I really did think that I was making this very uh, dramatic move because I was so inflamed with this desire to be a great actress. It wasn't until many years later in my psychoanalysis that I realized that um, what I was really doing was running away from home. I just did not want to be in the uh, gilded cage that I saw my mother in. I wanted something more for my life. So I came to New York. Uh, to me, New York was, uh, I had fantasies of it being the center of intellect and emotional truth and people doing exciting things. And so I, I came to New York. And I was an actress for, I guess, about eight years with moderate success. <laughs> I did a lot of commercials. I did some soap operas. Um, I did less theater than I really wanted to do, but I met a woman. It's interesting because I was listening to some of your other podcasts and <clears throat> I listened to Robert Unger mm -hmm. and he talked about being in a taxi with this very charismatic woman. Uh, I think he was driving the cab. And by the time they crossed the park in New York, she had recruited him to psychoanalysis and to go meet Lou Ormont. Well, the funny thing is that I met that very same woman. <laughs> we happened to be uh, doing summer stock together one summer. And she nagged and nagged and nagged me. 
you have to try psychoanalysis. And I resisted heartily. And she said, you're an actress and your feelings are your, are your instrument. And if you wanna be a Stradivarius, you have to undergo a personal analysis. So I finally decided I would try it. And um, it was a very interesting experience. But quite early on in my first uh, analysis with my first analyst, he recommended that I go see Lou Ormont. He thought it would be good for me to be in a group. So I did go to see Lou Ormont. And um, he told me <laughs> after about 20 minutes that I was not ready for a group. And he was quite right. Mm -hmm. He also, um, I remember this meeting so vividly. He told me all about my mother. We had been together maybe 20 minutes. And he said to me, you had a very distracted, neglectful mother. And I thought that he was some sort of um, psychic or magician. I, I could not believe he saw my mother so clearly. Now, here we are, what, almost 40 years later. And I can, I can do that trick now, too. <laughs> when, when somebody walks into my office, within 20 minutes, I know what their mother was like. Mm -hmm. But at the time, uh, I just thought it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen happen. And he, I, I was very relieved because he was quite right. Mm. I was not ready for a group. I, I didn't have the ego strength. I didn't know who I was. Um, I didn't know myself at all. And so he sent me back to my analyst and three years went by and then I decided I wanted to go back and see Lou again. So I came back and I said, you told me three years ago that I'm not ready for a group, but I've been doing a lot of work on myself and I would like to try it. And he said, oh my God, you've become a person. <laughs> So he invited me into a group and that's how, uh, that was my first encounter with Lou and my first uh, experience with group. And um, after about five years of personal analysis and I guess two years of group, I decided I was more interested in being a psychoanalyst than in being an actress. So I immediately changed gears. I went back to social work school. I enrolled at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. I got my doctorate in uh, psychoanalysis and I became a psychoanalyst myself. So that's how, that's my story of how I got to where I am. Right, and I remember you saying that you were actually experiencing some moderate success as an actress in New York City, which even that is actually remarkable given how competitive it is. What do you think happened for you during that five-year period that made you want to shift in becoming a psychoanalyst? Well, you know, people ask me all the time, it's, that's such a strange transition, actress to analyst, but I don't see it that way. I wanted to be an actress, um, and I was good at it, because it was the only place in my life where I could be honest. Growing up in the, the very repressed Southern culture that I did grow up in with, with the expectations about how women should be, I had to lie all the time, particularly to myself. And acting 
was the only place in my world at that time where I could tell the truth and be totally, yes, be truthful and honest about my feelings. And analysis provides a similar forum. And I think that's why, I think that need to be truthful and experience myself in my integrity was what uh, uh, analysis offered me too, but in a much more interesting um, forum. Mm -hmm. So they were both really avenues of emotional honesty and expression. Exactly. Mm. You know, some, my mother used to say, why do you want to be an analyst and listen to all those people suffer? And I said, I love to be in a, in a room where people are telling the truth, even if the truth is painful and shocking and disgusting. It is such a therapeutic experience for me to be in a place where people are totally honest. And that, that's what was so amazing and so overstimulating about Lou's groups and, and many modern groups. They, People tell each other the truth. And you mentioned that was overstimulating, kind of thrilling and uh, overstimulating? Yes, I think unless you have a very strong ego, it can be very overstimulating, particularly in Lou's groups, because most of his group members were therapists. They were very seasoned. They were very emotionally intelligent. And um, it could be a very overstimulating place. I'm sure you've experienced that a little bit at um, the weekend training program. For some people, the groups are, uh, they're just overstimulating mm -hmm. and, and they need to be insulated Absolutely. in those environments until they're strong enough to, you know, withstand the truth. <laughs> well, I'm so happy you're bringing this up because at, during this interview, I would actually love to come back to this question of how do you assess when somebody is at a point in their treatment where um, a group would be a beneficial step and how you look for that and in any ways in which also through your experience with Lou, things that you saw him picking up on that help to sort of illuminate our understanding of when a person may be ready and when they're not, because I, I've seen it really backfire when somebody enters a group and they're not ready for that level of stimulation. It could backfire for them personally, it could backfire for the group. That's so right. You know, it's something I'm really, really interested in. Uh, so I'd love to come back to that. But one other thing I'm really curious about that you were talking about is this issue of culture and being a Southern woman from Texas and making this transition into New York. And what an incredibly bold thing you did here in terms of this form of individuation. But I would be curious, any um, ways that that helped or hindered your experience of transitioning into the modern analytic culture of New York City and ways that you saw that experience unfold for you? Yeah, it, it was, you know, people would look at me and listen to my accent and make all sorts of assumptions about me. Um, I remember when I was first applying to social work school, um, the, the man who was interviewing me was sort of, um, accusing me of, of the sins of the, of the South, you know, of being racist. He assumed I wasn't too bright. 
And I think that's because I was blonde and pretty and spoke with a Southern accent. But it was very ironic to me that he was putting all of this baggage onto me while accusing me of putting all this baggage onto uh, people of a different color. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did experience a lot of uh, prejudgments about me as I went through. It's better now that I'm getting old um, and I have some accomplishments on my resume. But I do think that uh, I, I, when I walked into the room when I was quite young, people would make assumptions about me. On the other hand, uh, I have some skills that I uh, see a lot of my colleagues lack. And they come from uh, being raised in the South as a woman. I, I can um, really sort of, um, I'm, I, I'm trying to think of a way not to make this sound profane. <laughs> I know how to put on a big smile when I want to murder someone. Mm-hmm. And I learned that in the South. And it's a skill that has been helpful in numerous ways to me both personally and professionally. And I'm grateful that I have it. And I do see people in groups sometimes that really could use a little bit of that. Could use some healthy, yeah, more exercising, more subtlety. Right. (laughs) Well, you mentioned that um, of all of the different kind of psychoanalytic institutions and approaches that you, you got a chance to explore, something about modern group work really appeal to you. And I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about what appealed to you and also how would you describe what modern group analysis is? Well, I guess the hallmark of modern group analysis is the use of um, immediacy. Um, Modern analysts work in the here and now. Uh, And we're much less interested in hearing people's history, their sad stories, than in helping them relate to the people in the room. And that is a very powerful tool. Um, Lou was, he was very rigid about keeping you in the room. He had very low tolerance people uh, going on and on and on about how their mother made them suffer. He wanted you to relate to the people in the room. And that has many advantages. First of all, when you bring yourself to the room and talk about your thoughts and feelings toward the other people in it, you live your history. You don't report it. It's there. You're experiencing it and all the other people in the room can feel it and observe it. And so it becomes a very immediate laboratory to work on your issues. It's not, it's not, it's not didactic in the way that uh, reporting your history is telling people a story or teaching them a lesson about you. It is, um, you're working with feelings. And I think all real, learning and all real uh, deep characterological change happens at the feeling level. It doesn't happen at the intellectual level. I I know um, 
there has been a time in my life when I've been absolutely fascinated uh, with neuroscience. And my book, uh, Wrestling with Destiny, talks a lot about uh, the way the human brain works and how it's sort of divided into three brains, one of which is very primitive, almost like the brain of a dinosaur. Um, and the, the, uh, the second brain is wrapped around that brain. It's uh, the limbic system. And it developed with the mammals. And that's where feelings lie. And then the very smallest part of the brain on the top of, of the brain is very recently evolved. It's only about 200,000 years old. And that's where reason and ethics and logic live. And thank God we have that. But it's a very anemic and rather powerless part of the brain. Um, the impulses that pulse up from the dinosaur brain and from the mammal brain into the cerebral cortex are so powerful. And the little cerebral cortex has very little control over those lower parts of the brain. And that, that explains why we all of, often act like animals because our instincts and our impulses are very, very hard to control. So in modern group, you're not really working too much with the cerebral cortex. You're working with feelings. And that is, um, that's where real change happens when, when you have new feelings. The other thing that I think that working in the moment uh, does for people, which is so important, is it really challenges the repetition compulsion. We all have these old um, patterns of, of working, functioning, that were developed probably in the first year of life when we were trying to cope with being alive. And you, know, you can go to individual analysis and you can work for years on your particular repetition compulsions and get a lot of insight about that kind of thing. But insight never helps. I mean, I, I have patients, you know, I, I have a patient who can tell me that she keeps uh, choosing her sadistic father over and over again. She knows that. She can come into her individual session and tell me, well, I found daddy again, and he's sadistic and he's impossible. But she doesn't seem to be able to try on anything new. Group is, is a wonderful place to try on something new and experience all the, the terror of that, all the boredom of that, all the anxiety about that in a safe place so that you can really practice trying the new in an immediate way with the people in the room. Lou used to say, if you can make a good relationship with a man in the group, it will happen in the outside world six months later but you have to practice here first. And I think he was quite right about that. Like there's a way in which working so immediately brings the past alive in the present right. moment in the group. Right. And I'm also hearing you say it's, it's almost like the group becomes a secure base to really explore and take risks and try new things that can then be translated into relationships outside. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this reminds me of a, a quote that you have in Wrestling with Destiny that I absolutely love. It says, the repetition compulsion may be immune to insight and reason, but emotional communication can rewire the brain. 
And I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit about what emotional communication is and how you use that in your groups. Emotional, well, Lou talks about progressive emotional communication. It's where you talk about your feelings in the moment with the person that you're relating to. Uh, and most people, when, when they are talking to other people in group, will muster all their defenses. They'll, they'll, um, they've got many clever ways of avoiding really talking to other people. They're defended, they're frightened, and the group leader, the modern group leader, may interrupt these defenses and say, uh, Lucy, what are you feeling toward Angelo when you say that? Do you have a feeling toward him? To encourage the person who is trying to relate to approach the other person on a feeling level, not a defensive level, but a feeling level. Because if, if the, the people talking can be very honest about their feelings, about their fears, about being close to the other, um, about their aggression toward the other, that they're, they're expressing in all sorts of subtle, indirect ways, those become um, opportunities. They create paths where people can grow together. And again, you're working on that limbic level. You're not working on an intellectual level. You're working on a feeling level. So all the, all, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just, I think what I'm hearing you say is that when people are really able to put words to their feelings, they don't need to act them out so much. Right. Right. Then it, op op it uh, opens the opportunity for people to really just engage intimately and vulnerably with one another in that moment. Right. And, you know, you, it's, group is a place to also make a lot of mistakes and do everything wrong. Uh, when I first started group, I picked uh, the men in the room that were very similar to the men that I'd been having terrible problems with in my personal life. I was attracted to uh, a certain uh, sadism in men that wasn't really good for me. And I probably unconsciously created it in every man in the room. So I blundered around for years. Uh, and the men that did not want to relate to me in a sadistic way, I found rather boring. So all of that had to be worked through. All of those, those layers had to be worked through and that took years. But I don't think, my, my personal analysis uh, uh, was responsible for tremendous growth. I really learned who I was, why I operated the way I did. And that was all fantastic. But I would not have been able to change my life profoundly without a group. And that I did, and I did it by finding ways to relate to people in the room in new ways. Mm. That's beautiful. I'd be curious to hear you say that because you really kind of identify some of the leaps that individual analysis helped you to make. And then there was a whole different kind of work that happened for you in groups. How do you see that the differences between uh, the benefits that we can get from individual work versus the kind of benefits that we might get through more of a group process situation? 
Well, you know, now I have opinions about this, but I want to tell you that there are many people who think that I'm completely wrong about this. So this is my personal view. There are many people who are affiliated with the group center think that group is the only therapy and that any, they can put anybody in a group, no matter how uh, repressed, regressed, uh, fragile. I do not believe that. I believe that individual work with its emphasis on a dyad, an analyst and a patient, recreates the original dyad of mother and infant. So that in that safe, uh, non-stimulating environment, the infant patient can come to know who they are and learn, uh, first of all, to, to, uh, to know that there's an object there. There's so many people who come into group who don't even know that there are other people in the world. They only can relate to themselves. And it's because they, they did not successfully complete that first um, dyadic relationship with an object who was there and who was showing them who they were by, by reflecting the infant from their own eyes. So that's a very important experience. And I think that's what Lou was telling me when I first met him, that I needed to have that experience for a while before I was ready to play well with others, as they say in elementary school. Um, now, that's my opinion. And there, there are plenty of therapists who would disagree. That being said, I don't think that individual analysis can ever do what group does. So I think, I think you need both. Mm -hmm. So an in individual analysis, it's almost like there is this developmental nutrient that can be vital to have um, almost as a building block to really be able to go into group and to be able to leverage that experience and get the benefits from and the nutrients from that kind of situation. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I don't put, uh, I don't automatically put people into group when they come into my practice. I mean, in fact, most people, I don't feel are, are ready to really use group effectively until they have gained some ego strength in individual therapy. Mm. So However, people who leave at the end of what they, they think they're finished with individual therapy and they don't go on to group, I think they've missed a tremendous opportunity to recreate their world. I think it's so important what you're saying here. And, and I'm curious, when you're consulting with somebody, meeting with somebody for the first time, how do you assess for that? How do you get a feeling for where they are in their process and what's going to be the most beneficial step for them to take? I'm trying to think if I've ever had anybody, well, I was, I, I was wondering as you were asking that, has there ever been anybody who has come into my office that I've put into a group and a group only? And the answer to that is yes. There are people who come and they say, I wanna be in a group. But 99% of the time, those people have been in individual therapy for a minimum of three to five years and they are ready for a group. The people who, that I meet who come into my practice with no therapeutic experience, I mean, I would no more put them in a group than I would put an infant in a third grade classroom. Um, 
so I, I do think that unless they're extremely, um, you know, they've had the right kind of family and they, they are uh, really pretty strong, then maybe I would put them right into group. Mm -hmm, but, but they have to be uh, pretty robust. Yeah, they have to be pretty robust. <laughs> sure. Well, you, um, you write so much in your work about gender, um, really in particular with the internal triangle, but I would love to hear you uh, talk a little bit about how you see the gender of the group leader impacting the group process and anything you have noticed in terms of what happens and what differences might occur in a group when there is a female leader versus a male leader. I, I didn't really think much about this until I... Uh, I inherited a group from Lou. Lou died in 2008, and um, it was a terrible shock to all of his patients and all of his groups. And um, he didn't do a very good job of uh, preparing people to move on. Um, and so people were sort of floundering around. And I uh, got a call from um, a member of one of his groups. They had been trying to go it alone without a leader for, I, I think Lou died in November. This was January. And uh, this woman told me that they were too frightened uh, of the aggression that was coming out in the group and they felt they needed a leader. And they had talked uh, for many weeks and they decided they would like me to take this group on. And I was very flattered and very excited. And it was probably the most challenging experience of my professional life. Um, let, let me say that I think a lot of what happened in that group, I've worked with that group a little over two years. And a lot of what happened in that group, I think had to do with uh, their rage at Lou for abandoning them without any preparation. Um, but it got me thinking about the fact that Lou was a man and I was a woman. Because one of the things I heard over and over again in this group, and they were furious at me most of the, of the two and a half years that I worked with them. But what I heard, uh, the ideas behind the anger were, you should know. You should know. You should understand. Why can't you read my mind? And also, there was this incredible uh, res group resistance that I was really never able to resolve, which was everybody wanted to be alone with me. Everybody in the room wanted to be alone with me. Now, I know that wasn't the case in Lou's groups. I was in Lou's groups for 35 years. And there were many feelings of longing and loving that Lou induced, but I never remember anybody making a singular effort to get Lou all to themselves. And this was a big resistance in this group. So they were enraged and hungry. They were enraged, hungry infants in a way that I know they were not when Lou was running the group. These people had been in Lou's group some 20, 25 years. And suddenly here they were with me and they were enraged, hungry infants. And it was very powerful. Oh my goodness, I spent hundreds of dollars in supervision on that group. 
But one thing that did come out of it was that I developed some ideas about gender dynamics. And I do think that there are dynamics that male and female uh, group leaders need to be aware of. Because I think it's much more likely, if you're a woman, that you're going to have the resistance of um, your members expecting you to read your mind. And I think we all unconsciously expect a woman to read our mind. I mean, our first object was a woman, and she was pretty damn good at reading our mind. So why isn't this woman able to read my mind? And also the tendency to, to form a dyad, a refusal to accept the rest of the world and just want to make a dyad with the leader, I think is more prominent if the leader happens to be a woman. I think in a way it's sort of easier because we all became aware of, of our fathers at a time when they came into our life at already a group. It was the mother, the father, and, and me. So there was never this, this feeling that you should have your father all to yourself in the way that many of us unconsciously feel we should have our mother all to ourselves. And at, when I wrote the paper, I, uh, I didn't have any remedy for this. I just presented it as uh, uh, a dynamic that I thought that, that, uh, that men and women should uh, look out for. Uh, and I do think that men and women have different strengths and they can be extraordinarily helpful to each other. Um, men are much more, every time I generalize, I get nervous, but I, th I think that it's, um, I think it's, it's really more likely that men are more comfortable with their aggression than women. Not all men, not all women, but I think that in a group where you've got six men and six women, it's going to be pretty likely that the men are going to be able to be more comfortable with aggression. And this is extraordinarily helpful to the women who need to learn to be more comfortable with aggression. In the same way, women are trained, uh, at least they were when I was a child, to be empathic, nurturing, and men are more frightened of that. So men and women have tremendous lessons to teach each other. And one of the exciting things about uh, a successful group experience is that you can integrate both the feminine and the masculine intrapsychically in a way which is very freeing. If you're a man and you're comfortable with aggression and you learn to not be threatened by being empathic, that's wonderful. And if you're a woman who's learned to be feminine and nurturing, to be able to express your aggression clearly it's very freeing. So there are all sorts of gender dynamics that go on in group, and, and many of them can be extraordinarily helpful to all human beings if men and women learn to talk to each other in a progressive way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, with the emotional communication, I was thinking of you. Right. And I was also thinking about um, just the suddenness of Lou's death and the shock of that situation to the group and how much safer a dyad feels when we're terrified. Yes, and yes. It's been so terrifying to have Lou Ormont, of all people, die suddenly and then to be in such a open and frightening situation. Yes, it was, everyone was traumatized, including the leader. 
Well, actually, shifting from uh, terror to desire, um, our, the topic of our upcoming conference is desire, wishes, fears, and impulses in group psychotherapy. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about the role of desire in groups, both, both as a member and as a leader. Well, desire is uh, the most exciting prospect in group because it's out of our desires and our longings that we grow. And um, I don't think you can, you can have the therapeutic uh, experience of desire in individual therapy nearly as, um, as uh, beautifully as you do in, in group. Uh, and I'm thinking it's out of my uh, sexual feelings toward the men in my groups when I was a patient that I created uh, working through those desires working through the desires that maybe weren't so good for me, uh, cultivating desire where I never dreamed it could be, created incredible potential for me to change my life in a, um, an amazing way. So I think that desire is the fuel uh, that propels us forward to new experience in group. So it, it's to be highly desired. <laughs> uh, it's very good if you've got a, a group of people that are full of desires for each other. Um, it, you've got a lot to work with. It's wonderful. Um, the desire of the, of the therapist, um, when I think of the desire of the therapist, I think about the, um, the idea that modern analysts have that you should stay in supervision for life. Um, Certainly the therapist has desire. Um, I have a personal opinion that when you have too much desire for your patient, you're going to get into trouble. And I'm not just talking about sexual desire. Um, I, one of my rep repetitions is to take care of younger sim siblings. I want to um, protect them, help them, guide them, save them. And if I get a patient in the room that uh, really stirs up those, those primitive desires in me, it is very dangerous. I lose my analytic neutrality. I get all wrapped up in uh, trying to be their uh, savior and protector. And I get all screwed up. I can't think clearly. I can't see them clearly. I can't see, I just see them as victims. I, I'm terribly uh, connected to them, but I don't see the full picture because in a way I'm, I'm blinded by my own desire. So I think um, desire in, on the part of the therapist is something that has to be faced honestly and then worked through carefully in supervision because um, I think that Objective neutrality is, is uh, the clearest window into helping people. And um, we can sometimes get a little waylaid by our own desire. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost a matter of dosage. In, in a sense, I'm hearing you say, like desire as an analyst or a group leader can really energize our work. But there's a point at which it shifts more into that drive 
situation and then that becomes dangerous to the to the analyst and to the client right and you know sexual feelings toward uh, a patient uh, are in my experience when i have taken them into supervision they are often being induced by the patient the patient is seducing you and and when you really work it through you realize it's not always a friendly gesture if you have a patient who's who's trying to seduce you there are other feelings besides sexual feelings under that seduction so all of that has to be worked through in um in a therapist's own supervision you know at the center for modern psychoanalytic studies it's not unusual for my colleagues to live well past 100 and there is a, a feeling down there that we live so long because we stay in supervision all our lives mm -hmm. so we all have places to talk lots of places to talk just as we we provide places for our patients to talk we give ourselves that same um, um, experience and what would you see is occurring in that talking that is so vitalizing and enlivening? I think that you are converting uh, those limbic uh, productions, those feelings, desires, fears, passion, grief, rage. You're rather than trying to sit on it, repress it, and maintain an analytic neutrality, you are able to discharge it into language and this is this has a very uh good effect on your physical health being a therapist you know we we're filled with toxins five days a week people come in and and they fill us full of rage and grief and and trauma and it's very important to have safe places where we can talk about the things that are that that uh are filling us up and they're not always uh, uh, obvious. You know, it's one thing if somebody comes in and tells you how they've been sexually and physically uh, abused all their lives, but there are all kinds of, of uh, very clever ways that uh, our patients can fill us full of terrible things that we're not even conscious of. And all of this can be worked through by talking it out in a safe place with in a, a group a supervision group which is a wonderful thing to be with colleagues uh or in in a, a personal supervision to have a place to talk you're motivating me to make sure my next supervision session set up because <laughs> what i'm really um a, a big piece i'm taking away from this is how important it is to have emotional insulation as yes as a therapist, as an analyst, as a group leader, and the ways in which uh, supervision and connecting with our peers can be a, a, a vital um, way for us to develop that kind of emotional insulation. And it's very surprising, uh, in, particularly in supervision group, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for a therapist to be talking about a patient and talking about that patient with great love and great desire and uh, an enormous impulse to help and everyone else that's sitting in the room will want to murder the patient this is a very interesting dynamic and if the other people in the room can be honest and say why do i want to murder this patient 
it can be very helpful to the therapist who may be repressing some unconscious aggression or not wanting to know exactly what's going on in the room. So sometimes uh, the group is helpful in helping a therapist work with the, the feelings that they don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love you uh, saying that because I recently read something about when a client and a therapist enter some kind of impasse, it's frequently because they're each getting something out of that impasse. There's something right. about that situation they don't want to look at. And it seems like you're saying in a group situation in particular, maybe individual supervision as well, um, the, that element that's not wanting to be addressed, the unsayable or the unthinkable, gets induced in the rest of the group. And they're able to challenge the therapist to really look at that vantage point of it. So we're, again, we're seeing that individual supervision, just like individual analysis, is a wonderful thing. But uh, a supervision group you've got a rainbow of perspectives out there that you can listen to, use what's good, uh, uh, discover things that you didn't know. Uh, there's just a, an opportunity in a supervision group that you probably don't get in a one-to-one supervision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That groups just are so fertile with opportunity, really. Right. Totally. Well, I, I'm noticing we're, we're nearing the end of our time, and there's one final question that on the podcast we'd like to ask our guest, which is to speak to any area of growth that you're currently working on, kind of a cutting edge for you that you're exploring in your career and your professional work, your work as a group leader that is enlivening, that is challenging, that is uh, kind of the, the opportunity for the next step for you. Well, I'm working on getting old. Uh, it's, uh, it's a new journey. Uh, it's, uh, when you were reading my CV, I said, oh, who is that? You know, I, I've, I've done a lot of things and um, my interests are subtly shifting. Uh, when I wrote uh, The Internal Triangle and Wrestling with Destiny, I was very interested in analytic theory I remember particularly with my first book, I was very interested in being smart. And I think as I wrote my second, I became more interested in being understood. But both books were um, wrestling with psychoanalytic concepts and psychoanalytic theory and neuroscience. And that was wonderful. Um, I think it's not, uh, I think I've shifted to a novel for very good reasons. I think that I'm less interested in theory, intellect, uh, than I am in feeling. Um, and the novel, the novel is feelingful uh, and, and not particularly uh, theoretical, not at all theoretical and not particularly intellectual. Um, I do notice that I, I, I'm, I'm more talkative in my groups than I have ever been. I think that uh, I have a reputation for being very quiet in group. And I, I have, uh, that has been my basic stance. I have believed in the contact function. I don't think it's helpful uh, uh, for me to jump in when people haven't invited me in. Um, I, I do think that, um, it's important for people to say, 
I, I need you to pay attention to me and here's what I need from you. Because in telling me about what they need, they are introducing themselves to what they need. And it's much better than if I just jump in and try to mother everyone. So I've, I've been very firmly uh, uh, loyal to that theory. And I'm sometimes accused of being um, too quiet, uh, not caring, not being there in the room. But I've stuck to that, to that stance, that it's helpful for people to come to me and tell me what they need, and then I, I can work with them to make sure they get what they need. Lately, I, I have begun to feel, and this is one of the good things about getting old, that I, I'm full of good things. When I was a young analyst, I followed the rules very rigidly. I was quiet. I didn't speak unless spoken to. And I had pretty good results with that. But I've come to a point in my life where I go, oh, I know where she is. I, uh, not only do I understand where she is, but I've seen this 20 times, and I have things to say. This is a new feeling for me. Mm. I've, I've been an analyst for 40 years, and in the last couple of years, I've begun to feel that I'm full of good things, and I want to give them. And that's a very nice thing about getting old. We'll see what effect it has on the, on the long term. But um, I've become less in my head and, and more in my heart. And um, I think it's affected my work in, in my groups. It's certainly affecting my writing. And maybe, I don't know, maybe someday I'll write about getting old. It seems to be a completely verboten uh, topic of conversation at all the places where I teach. Nobody wants to talk about getting old and dying, but it's a journey like any journey. I mean, it's like adolescence. Uh, I'm sure you felt when you were 12 and 13 that you didn't know what to do and you'd never been at the brink of adulthood and where do I go from here? And, and there's a similar feeling when you confront the fact that you're getting old. So um, there's a lot to learn in the journey. Well, I'd love to hear you kind of uh, breaking through that resistance that even exists maybe in a, on an unspoke, unspoken cultural level within psychoanalysis, with maybe within modern analysis. And you talk about it so beautifully in the sense of it sounds so much more relaxed and um, just in the lived experience and knowing that you have so much to offer and just being willing to express that. Good. And I hope that, that if we're in a group together, you'll, you'll tell me to shut up when I need to shut up. Uh, I think old people do need to be told to shut up from time to time. Well, it's hard for me to imagine that kind of situation. I could listen to you talk for hours, Dr. Holmes. Thank you. Which, which unfortunately, um, given the time, we are going to have to end. But I just wanted to thank you so much for your availability. Uh, and we cannot wait to host you in November. I'm so looking forward to it, and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. All right, well, I'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, Dr. Holmes, can I ask you one other question? Sure. Uh, if anybody's listening to this and they would love to find a way to follow up with you, how could they do that? Well, they could follow up with me by email, drlucyholmes at gmail.com. Uh, I have a website, www.drlucyholmes.com. They can contact me there. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. 
And uh, we'll also um, make sure that those are available in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Holmes, for your time. And we will look forward to seeing you in Colorado soon. I'm looking forward to it too. Goodbye. Bye.